0: How are y'all? Good. How many of you uh, forgot to set your clock ahead? None of you? No. Yeah, you got... Yeah, right. The only thing, the uh, because of smartphones, the only thing that springing forward and falling back are good for are memes on Facebook. You know what I mean? That's it. That's all we get from them anymore. Um, I didn't sleep very well, not because of the time, but uh, I woke up and my children were in the bed with me and if you have kids you know that once that happens I, you know what it's like you know and by the way your hair's getting nice and long and I kind of feel like you're showing off is kind of what I feel like as I saw you this morning I was that. that's right you and I are the same age right you're what no that's not true you're like 52 aren't you oh you're 49 okay but you're 49 right I mean he's 49 I'm, I'm not even 41 I will be on the April the 9th Daniel write that down Don't forget my birthday. So you're like eight years old, and I've got more gray hair. Yours is thicker and longer than mine. You can leave. All right, so (laughs) we got, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Wow. All right, I'm going to be in Matthew chapter number 16 this morning. If you want to turn over there with me, Matthew chapter 16. I was uh, debating on what to talk about. Um, I wasn't real sure, really, up until about two days ago. I had to work yesterday, so I was kind of almost into one of those, what I call, when I pastor, I call them Saturday night special sermons. You know, you work all day Saturday, and then at 8 o'clock, you're like, all right, somehow I've got to put together an entire sermon. But I have a secret weapon See, I pastored for almost seven years, so I've got seven years of sermons. My studying is done. I just pull it up, I look back over it, and say, "That sounds crazy. Take that out. Uh, insert that. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that illustration makes no sense." And of course, uh, the, the multitude of spelling errors that are throughout my notes, which are my own particular hieroglyphics that I understand. And uh, but uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about the church that Jesus built in Matthew chapter number sixteen. Uh, it's a very uh, well-known portion of Scripture. Uh, tons of doctrine and tons of assumptions are made from it. Um, uh, like I said, I pastored a church for six years. Before that, I was an evangelist for two years, about two and a half years, something like that, I can't remember. Then before that, I was, uh, believe it or not, I was the principal of a Christian school, bless their hearts, and uh, I, taught, uh, I taught math to 7th uh, and 8th grade boys. Do we have any 7th 8th grade boys in here? No? All right, if there's any seventh, eighth, ninth grade girls in here, let me give you a piece of advice. That age bracket for guys, that is when they're at their height of stupidity. All right, so just keep that in mind. All right, just it, it is. There's something going on there. Only one part of their brain is totally solidified. It doesn't completely congeal into a brain until around, I would say, let's be generous and say 30. Okay, you're right, right, true. Well, uh, since you're since you're so much my elder, I'm going to go with your number. <laughs> What's that now? And you have that? Wow, exactly. So yes, he knows. Thirty years old. I'm just past the power curve. Then wow. So uh, <laughs> uh, so with all that being, I don't even know why I went off on that. But uh, with all that being said, uh, I've been in church for quite in church for quite some time. I grew up going to church. so I was about ten. I went to Saint Elmo Baptist Church. I don't know if you guys know where St. Elmo is, but it's that way. And uh, so that's the church I grew up in until I was about 10 or 11 years old. We got baptized twice while I was there because I'm a good Baptist. And uh, I didn't even know why. I just got baptized. I remember one time we watched that movie. Uh, oh, what was it called? Thief in the Night. You guys remember that movie? I was like seven or eight years old. The only thing I remember about that movie is this part where they're like, have these, these uh, bodies wrapped up in a blanket. And they're like burning them. And I'm like, uh, that's not going to be me. Tell me what needs to happen so I don't get burned. That's all I thought at seven or eight years old. So I like went forward. They baptized me the next Sunday. I don't even remember why. But hey, I was going to be sure uh, that I wasn't going to get caught up in the bad part of the tribulation. Now my theology is all thrown off. and I don't even know what to do with it anymore when it comes to that. But when we get into Matthew chapter number sixteen, particularly what Jesus has to say about himself and who we are as the church and who Jesus is as the Savior, directly connected—you can't separate those two, obviously. Um, When Jesus talked about uh, building his church, uh, you know, instituting what we now refer to as church or anything things of that nature, he wasn't referring to uh, an organization that we have organization in a church meeting situation. Uh, he was referring to an organism, a living body of people. And we often refer to church as family, and certainly there's a, a family aspect to that. You know, uh, we talk about church as a community, and there's an aspect to it as that as well. Uh, the number one term used to refer to us as a church is the body of Christ. Uh, and I think that's very important because it puts the emphasis not so much on what we create as being together, but what He creates and having called us together. And I know that might seem somewhat like a play on words, but when we get into it, I think you'll see there is kind of a difference there. Uh, The world has plenty of communities. I mean, uh, even within townships, they'll build community centers and have events and get together, but that's not the same as the body of Christ. Uh, You know, we have family get-togethers. That's not the same as the body of Christ. Uh, There is a difference there, the difference being who Jesus is and where Jesus is at. Because you can meet at a community center and uh, God has not called out the community center for him to all play bingo on Friday night. But uh, he has called out a group of people uh, to live in the world and then to assemble together with one another whose frequency he never determined, by the way. The uh, only reason we meet on Sunday was because we celebrate the resurrection. That's why we meet on Sunday. The book of Acts it says they met on the first day of the week, so we do that. Can you imagine, as a first century Jew, getting together for religious observances on a day that wasn't Saturday? That's a big deal, isn't it? You know, because Jesus didn't, I'm getting ahead of myself, but Jesus didn't come to give us a revamped Judaism. You know, the, what we are as the, with the refer- word and the Greek word for the word church is the ecclesia, the called out ones, is not a religious uh, amalgamation of what Judaism used to be. It was a new thing that God was instituting on the earth in which he could dwell in. On the Old Testament, God dwelled in temples made with hands, didn't he? Right? The Solomon's temple, uh, you know, the spirit of God, the presence of God would come into that building. And uh, that everyone associated the presence of God with that locale. And what is the number one location we all associate the presence of God with under the Old Testament? That, that city, what is it? Jerusalem, right? That's where the temple was. Uh, interestingly enough, by the, time we get to, uh, by the time we get to Jesus' time, we don't have just the temple anymore. We have Herod's temple now, you see? So religion always wants to slap names on things and give credence to other human beings, and that is a completely different sermon. But let's read this text, and uh, we'll probably uh, look through it a couple of different times. I'm going to read it all as an entirety so we can get us a good idea of what's going on, and then we'll break it apart. So uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13 says, When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I'm reading the New King James if you want to follow along word for word with me. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now I'm just going to pause right there for just a minute throw this out here for something for you to think about, encourage you to come on Wednesday nights too because we're going to talk about this eventually. Jesus never referred to himself as the Christ or as the Messiah in the Gospels. Did you know that? Not one time did Jesus say, hey guys, I'm the Messiah. He never did it. But what he did do is he says, I am the son of man. He said that quite often. Uh, Interestingly enough, Jesus was saying, I'm the human representative. I'm the original man that is going to stand before God for you. And uh, we're going to unpack that on Wednesday nights. That's just my commercial, all right, at 6.30 on Wednesday night, 6 o'clock for food. Hashtag, I'm done, all right? So, who do men say that I am? And that's a good, it's still a relevant question, right? People are always, you know, everybody has their idea about who Jesus is, all right? So he asked his disciples this. They said, and it's not that Jesus was insecure and he's like, hey, guys, what are people saying about me? And that's not what he was doing here. He was setting the stage for something larger. And so they said, some say John the Baptist. Now I used to be Baptist, and I really liked that that was the first guy that they brought up, you know. But the fact of the matter is, is the word Baptist just means immerse or dunk. So we could call him John the Dunker, even though for some reason that sounds like he might have a drinking problem. I don't know why. <laughs> So it says, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, who he was like the hardcore prophet, you know what I mean? People were like touching his bones and coming back to life and all kinds of crazy stuff. If I'm getting the right Elijah, Elijah, if I got it wrong, you can write a blog post about it. And, uh, and others said Jeremiah, the compassionate one, right? Jeremiah was that weeping prophet, wasn't he? Uh, so we've got the prophet that came in and rattled religion. And then you got the prophet who had great power. And then you have the prophet who was the weeping prophet. And so people are all, when, when they come to Jesus and they say, he says, who do people say that I am? They, get, they say a lot of really good things about him. I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, man, you remind me of John the Baptist. It's not an insult, you know, in the, in the least. Or if you would have been likened to Elijah. I mean, it's a great thing, you know. Jeremiah, the same, he was a compa- Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. And so they ask him that, and he says, all right, well, that... That's good. In verse 15, he says to them, but who do you say that I am? And that's really what matters is the pointed question when Jesus looks at us as the individual. And he says, who do you say that I am? By the way, just because we say Jesus is something doesn't mean that he is something. When if the only time that what we say carries weight is when it agrees with what God has already said. In verse 16, of course, we always give Simon Peter a hard time, don't we? He's like the first one to talk. And uh, always, he's got uh, foot and mouth disease. You know, every time he opens his mouth, he puts his foot in it, supposedly. So he answers up real quick, and he says, uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, He didn't say, Good job, did he? Or, That's the right answer. He didn't say that, technically, did he? Notice how he starts off his response when he says, Blessed are you. That's pretty, that's pretty good, and this is why. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now what does that tell us about what it means to come to the conclusion that Jesus is indeed the Christ? There's no amount of books that a person is going to read that's going to wake them up to that. See, when a person comes into contact with Jesus, it's a matter of revelation. God reveals it. The, The Word gives the idea... Uh, and it gives the idea of almost like snatching the blankets off, or snatching the cover off something. When I was a kid, look, when I was in high school, I was so lazy. I was like, I was like lazy squared. All right, I was so lazy. For, and Ben, he was, in, he's not in here, but Ben and I, uh, we were friends from like the ninth grade on. We were so lazy. I didn't like getting haircuts, so I would just, me and him would just shave each other's heads with a pair of clippers down to number one, because for the main reasons, I didn't want to bother styling my hair. That's how lazy I was. I'm like, no, just shave it all off, you know. I was so lazy, this is no lie, and so I'm giving some of you guys some tips, all right, Uh, that I would get dressed for school when I went to bed, (laughs) Um, this is no lie, just so I could just wake up in the morning and I was already dressed, I mean, that's how, I mean, it was just ridiculous, you know, I just had to wake up and, uh, I think, I'm assuming I brushed my teeth, I mean, I made it this far, Uh, (laughs) I don't even know where I was going with the story, why do I keep doing this to myself, where was that? It is a good story. Can we just back If you're recording this, just back it up so I can figure out where I was going with this whole thing. Anyways, I don't know. Let's just move on. Good night. It snatches the cover off. That's it. Thank you very much, Lydia. You get a gold star. Uh, I, so when I would go to bed, my, uh, I would go to bed asleep, and I was a bear, a beast to wake up in the morning. My mom would have to go in there, flip on the lights, grab the covers, and drag the covers off of me completely. You know what I mean? Just take them away from me altogether because if she did not, I was just such a bum I wouldn't even get up in the mornings. And that's what that—that's it. Good job. That's what the word revealed means. It means just pull the cover stra- uh, off so you can see everything that's going on. And so that's what Jesus says to Peter. He says blessed are you because you didn't learn this. It was revealed to you. Um, and we're going to talk about that here in just a second. A little bit more about what that means. And And he says in verse number 18, he says, And I say unto you that you are Peter. Now Jesus is kind of doing a play on words here. He says, And you are Peter, and on this rock, not the rock of Peter, all right, not the rock of Peter, but on the rock of the statement that Peter made about Jesus being the Christ. He says, I I will build my church. And now this is one of the first times you see this word church thrown out by the uh, mouth of Jesus here. And it says, And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on the earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples, now this has always struck me as interesting, and he commanded his disciples that no one should tell, that they should tell no one he was Jesus the Christ. That's pretty interesting, right? You know why Jesus said that? Jesus at the time, because he was literally there, he didn't need anybody going around bragging for him. Just his very entrance into a community changed things. You see. Now, on everything that Jesus that just transpired here, the truths that uh, Peter proclaimed because of revelation, uh, Jesus says, "This is what I'm going to build my church on." All right. This is the this is the foundation of everything that's going to spring out of what my intentions are. From the, the the others from the cross on. Now remember the church technically doesn't exist yet. Not from here. Now I know I, just follow me, and there is points of disagreement, and it's very minute, but this is the way I take it Think about it. Here's Seth's buddy and not necessarily the Lord, okay? So you just take it for what you want. I don't believe the church truly came in existence until the day the Spirit of God indwelled the bodies of the church. Because Jesus is the one that makes a group of people the church. That's what makes us church. OK, <clears throat> in America, we've got a lot of ideas about what church is, right? Church, you like uh, in the in the uh, tradition I grew up in, if you said that it's not only is church a noun, it's also a verb because you can say you churched somebody. Anybody ever heard that phrase before? You churched somebody before. Uh, that means that they did something naughty, super naughty, like naughty times two. And everybody knew about it. And so you had to bring them up in front of the church and say, hey, this person's really naughty. We either vote to keep them or kick them out, all right? Which one are we doing here? You know, the, the yays or the nays have it. Now, the fact of the matter is, is that how, that's how it goes down, all right? So it's a verb. Uh, sometimes it's a, a noun in the sense that it's a place. I do it all the time. You know, we say, get up, I'm going to go to church. Well, technically, you, you don't go to church, all right? You might go to a church building maybe, uh, but you don't go to church because church is not necessarily a place. Uh, church is a group of people. Uh, that group gets together, but you don't go to it. You see what I mean? Now in America, we have the liberty to where we can identify ourselves as a body of believers around a singular geographic location. Like every week, we meet here with the name pure grace church right and people in this area know it because they drive by the building and they say hey there's a church but technically we're not really here this just keeps the weather off of us and keeps us cool you know and uh, gives us some comfortable chairs to sit in and gives you just about an hour and a half or some change respite from your children as someone educates them and the deep nature of the gospel back in the back i guarantee you ben's juggling something right now so you know that's how spiritual is getting back there so when Jesus said, I'll build my church, what exactly is he referring to? What exactly is his intentions? What exactly does he want us to take away from what he means there? All right? First thing is this. Um, we're going to look at the, ident- the identity of the church. All right. This is what God wants. God is establishing an identity for you and I based on who he is in this passage. And this is what I mean by that. Up here in verse number 13, and we're not going to read it all down, in verses number 13, 14, and 15. Remember, he says, who do, you, who do people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? All right. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying, all right, what is my identity to you, and what is my ad- identity to other people? And so they reveal these identities. Uh, there is a Here in the passage, we find out that people around them had a very misguided identity because they wanted to attribute... Other human prophets to who Jesus was, right? Remember, we already talked about it. uh, These three prophets that are listed right here, which are good things, but they're not the Son of the Living God, are they? And with, you know, living in Utah as well, this really struck me too when they talked about. uh, Some say that. uh, Let me read it again. Some say that you're John the Baptist or one of the prophets. You know, I've always noticed this that out-and-out cults. And religious movements within the actual within Christianity that are cult-ish usually always build their foundation around somebody that has some kind of title like apostle or prophet. It seems like there's like always this guy that's like the number one hacho, and then everybody falls in this weird spiritual triangle. It's like a multi-level marketing program spiritually underneath him. You know what I mean? And uh, living in Utah, that was very much the case. You know, there was very much a hierarchy of spiritual uh, leadership, so to speak, there. And so there is, with all that, even with these things that are seemingly good, it can put in a misguided identity on who Jesus is, and by default puts a misguided identity on who we are. And if there's one thing we can say, there's lots of things we say is wrong with America. I, I, I get so tired of those statements, too, you know. Well, if America would just put prayer back in the schools. You know what? Hey, I'm all for people praying in school. I think, I think we should have the option to do it. Uh, I homeschool my, well, actually, I don't homeschool my kids. If I homeschool my kids, they would be in double trouble. Don homeschools my children <laughs> uh, for reasons like that. I want my kids to be in an environment where that's not an issue, you know what I mean? If we put prayer back in schools tomorrow, it's not going to change anything. You know why? Because you're going to have three kids praying to God. You're going to have five kids praying to Muhammad. You're going to have three doing a Hindu thing. Yeah, but prayer's back in schools. That's really not going to change anything. Uh, what's, uh, we say, well, our homes are all broken up and our homes have problems. And that's true. And you know what I think? If we just got more marriage counseling, our homes would be okay. Well, I can tell you from experience that's not the case. All right? You can get all the counseling in the world... But if people have identity problems or identity issues, the real problem is never going to be addressed. You see, without a biblical identity, there's always fleshly activity. And it rhymes, so you should write it in the front of your Bible. All right? The American church, we talk, who's ever been to a revival meeting? You ever been to one of those? I'm friends with a guy over across the bay, and I think he pastors a church. I don't even know how I'm friends with him on Facebook. Sometimes I just like accept, accept. After I hit the accept button, I'm like, oh, no, mistake. And I think I did that with this one particular. He pastors some church somewhere. And everything's a revival meeting for their church. Sunday morning revival, Sunday night revival, Tuesday night revival. I'm like, look, if I had to go to church as much as you were advertising it, I, I don't know how I'd even wash my clothes every week. I wouldn't have time to do anything, you know. Everything's a revival, a revival, a revival. Listen, the biggest revival we need is a revival not only in our, our group identity as a church, but our individually, individual identity as believers. That's the biggest revival we need. Uh, and a revival doesn't necessarily, a revival just simply means this, that it's, a, it's awakening, awakening us again to what's actually true. You know, I've read some, when I was in college, I read so many books on revival Uh, from D.L. Moody to uh, all these. I went to a Baptist college, so a lot of them were Baptist-oriented. You know, A.W. Tozer, the revivals that went around concerning him, the Sousa Street revivals in California. I've read about all these different revivals, and they all have different aspects. I never read one where everybody was just like suddenly woke up to the fact that what their identity was and that the identity of who Jesus was permeated throughout the church. It was always this different reactionary thing. And what Jesus does here at the very onset, before Acts chapter 2 ever happens, you know what the first thing he, try, he does, and not tries to do, but the first thing he does is, as he says, all right, this is my identity, and this is your identity as a result of it. This is who I am, and this is who you are as a result of it. This is the very first thing that he does. On pre-cross, before the cross even occurs, Jesus is already establishing identity based on who he is and based on who you are. So that should tell us something. It's pretty important, isn't it? it does, for, for years, I knew a lot about the Bible, but I knew nothing about my identity. You know? So as a result, what do I do? What do you do? We struggle, we strive, uh, we try different activities in order to gain an identity, to give ourselves, and by the way, let me say it this way. If maybe you're struggling in your mind, well, what do you mean by identity? I mean, identity is who you really are at your core. Not the way that you look, not the way you've been educated, but who you actually are. And I can remember who you actually are. And for years, I would struggle to accomplish things to kind of establish who I was rather than let Jesus establish that for me. So in verses number 16, Jesus talks about this revelation when he says, who do you say that I am? Now, not only is this good, this this question, should it be pondered for the believer for us to kind of begin to get a better grasp on what our identity is, this also has to be pondered by the unbeliever. One of the biggest misnomers about the gospel is this, is that Jesus individually takes care of the sin issue for the unbeliever as they come to him. So it's like they say this, if you will come to Jesus, then Jesus will take away your sins. Now that sounds really good, but it's not true. Jesus already took care of sin. All sins taken care of. Now, lest the flaming, fiery arrow of universalism fly at my head, all right? I do not, just for those that may be listening somewhere on the backside of Indonesia on the podcast, that does not mean that everybody's going to heaven, all right? The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is this one thing, and it's the identity of having received who Jesus is is true. That's the difference, All the obstacles for salvation have been taken out of the way. They're they're, they're gone. It says it very clearly in Colossians that Jesus took all those things and He nailed them to His cross, taking them out of the way. The number one thing that condemns an individual is unbelief. They die in their unbelief, so they die in their identity. Really, if you want to boil it down to its simplest terms, when a person comes to faith in Jesus, God changes their identity from darkness to light. Uh, I think it says over, it. maybe I wrote it down. Please say I wrote it down. Oh, I, no, I didn't. I wrote it down somewhere. Colossians, I think it's chapter 1, verse 13, if I remember the address properly. And I can't find, oh yes, there it is. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed, or the King James puts it, it says the word translated us into the kingdom of his son and of his love. So when a person comes to Jesus Christ and they're born again, their identity is completely revamped. See, I didn't understand that when I first got saved. Because when I was unsaved, my identity wrapped around a few core things that it it does for just about every 18 or 19-year-old. I'm not going to speak for all of you. I'll speak for me, but I think I'm 98.34566659% right on this. All right, I, uh, I, I stopped after the third six, I think. Didn't, I'm so sorry. And, uh, (laughs) you know, at 18 or 19 years old, the way that you dress is a part of your identity. You know, you've got to identify with your group by your clothes, you know. Uh, The music that you listen to, that's why some of you that like all the indie music despise country music, which I'm (laughs) one of those, by the way. And, uh, and all those, your friend groups, you know, all those stuff, they all, it all dictates your identity, you know. And there's some of you, I'm sure there's some young people right now, and you are looking at me, you're like, no, it doesn't. All right, then. But we'll just take all that away from you and see how you feel about yourself in about two weeks, all right. We'll let your mom pick out all your clothes, all right, every one of them. We'll, we'll let your grandma decide what music you're going to listen to next week, okay. Is that all right? Uh, we'll let, you know, take away the cell phone from Well, that that's that's next level, Doug. I mean, that's like yeah, yeah. That's I don't even want to go there. That's that's that's. that's that might be hardcore for me. I think I, I don't know. <laughs> so he talks about this revelation here. If you've never been born again, you've got to come to that realization about who Jesus says that He is. You know, there's a verse. I believe it's in Ephesians chapter number two. It says that. Before Christ, and I'm paraphrasing that part, and I'm getting to this phrase that actually says, it says that you're dead and your trespasses and your sins, um, which is a very interesting statement because the main identity that comes from knowing Jesus is life. It's having spiritual life where there was none. You know, there is, or wasn't any, excuse me, Um where when a person's unsaved we say well how can they be dead in something but still operating because death is not only something that happens to us but spiritually speaking it's a position a person lives from they're living from a position of death you know it's very notable that you look out at we look out into the world and they're spiritually oriented everybody's spiritually oriented whether they want to admit it or not they are That When a person is unsaved, their bend is always going to be towards spiritual darkness of some sorts. Whether it's quote-unquote religious or it's absolute hedonism, one way or the other, they're going to bend that way. Even as an unsaved person, I was the same way. I was very interested in spiritual things, but I always ended up at the wrong conclusion until I was confronted, or I shouldn't say confronted, I was you know, the the gospel was revealed to me. When the gospel was revealed to me, then I had a choice between life and death at that moment, between an identity that was darkness or light, uh, between being translated or between just staying where I was at in my, my, my lost condition. And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, look, no one taught you this. God revealed it to you. When it comes to us as believers... Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 20 says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. <clears throat> I'm not super familiar with construction, but I know enough about it to know that particularly when a stone structure was built, the cornerstone was very important. The cornerstone was off, everything was off. And they would lay that cornerstone first because it determined the, you know, the structural integrity of the entire building. And we may have been built on the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, but that would not even stand if it was not for the cornerstone. See, the church that Jesus built, it has always been intended to have Him as the very foundation of it. Now you say, well, that's trite. We know that. But do we really know it? I mean, do we really, do we really accept that sometimes? Because I think sometimes we feel like we can't, we can't be the church if it isn't for some of these very important details. You know, you can still be church and not have a lead pastor. Did you know that? You know, I, I very rarely will a body of believers, and I'll just say this, and I've talked to Justin about it too, so I I'm i not going out on a limb when I say this. There are more than, the, being a pastor is a spiritual gift. It is not a position. The bishop of a, of a location is a position. But a pastor is a spiritual gift. There's multitudes of people within a body that have the gift of a pastor. Just like there's multitudes of people that have the the multitude of other gifts as well. My point here is this. Having a pastor doesn't identify us as a church. Jesus identifies us as a church. Having a place to sit our rear ends every Sunday does not identify us as a church. Jesus does that. Having music doesn't identify us as a church. Jesus does that. Having offerings identifies us at a church because we, no, I'm kidding, it doesn't. (laughs) It's funny though, we do associate church with offering though, don't we? We do. Jesus is the one that identifies us as the church based on what he's saying right here. It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, uh, verses 4, excuse me, 4 through 6 says, coming to him as to a living stone, injected, or rejected indeed by men, but chosen of God and precious, you also are living stones. Now, get this, get the, the passive description of you and I being built up a spiritual house. Now, like I said, I pastored for a number of years, and one of the things that were on my mind, that was on my mind constantly as a pastor, was how do I build this church? You know what I mean? What program, what do I need to put into place to get the younger families to come? You know, what do I need to do to reach these people and to, you know, reach the senior saints or whatever? I mean, you guys get the fancy names. How come of us, none of us younger people get something like the younger saints? Only the, the, only the older retired people, you guys get the senior saints name. We just have to, you know, play second fiddle to that. You know, And on the forefront of my mind was always, what what can I do? What can I establish? What can I put into place? What kind of philosophy can I put out there to build this church? Well, the fact of the matter is, no one human being builds a church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said that you're being built. You're being built a spiritual house. See, we don't have to worry about church growth. You know what we have to worry about? All we have to worry about is walking in union with the Spirit... Jesus is going to build his church, and we're just going to go about our lives that way. Now, that's not to say we can't take out away some of the hindrances if we can, but we remove hindrances for other people, not for us, you see. It's kind of like not being offensive, but I'm not going to get into that because I'm usually offensive. Verse number 18, notice what Jesus talks about, this indestructibility that the church has. He says, and I say unto you, now he's talking to Peter. Remember about how Peter gives the the, the revealed answer. In verse number 18 he says, and I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, he says again, I will build my church. He says, and the gates of hell, or Hades is what my Bible says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now that implies something, and what is it? That the forces of darkness are going to come against the church. That's what it implies, right? In order for us to something, there's obviously some sort, of, you know, some sort of conflict that's going on there. The conflict really is on the side of darkness, really not on our side, because according to what the New Testament tells us after the cross, everything's finished, and we're operating from a position of victory. We're not gaining ground. We're standing on the ground that, we're, uh, that Jesus has bought for us and hell's coming at the church and coming at us individually, we don't have to go conquer anything. It's already been done. We just stand our ground, and that's it. This speaks here, of what Jesus is saying is this. This speaks of a continuing promise, two of them. Number one, that Jesus will constantly be building His church, because that's what the verbiage is. It's not like just one time He built it, He says, all right, I'm done, you guys take it from here. He's constantly going to be building the church. The other thing is this, is that there's not going to be anything that destroys the church. It's, we're, we live and the American society is very reactionary to negative news and we want to base what we're going to do around what's so negative. Look at politics. And I'm not going to get into politics. And it's a, Politics is an interesting, interesting word. The word poly means many or various different kinds, Right? And ticks are blood-sucking insects, so you figure that out, all right? (laughs) I'm kidding. If if, if your great-uncle Joe was a politician, I'm sure he was a great guy. But uh, it's just a good joke. I threw it in there. See, there there I go being offensive again. But we live in a society that, I mean, those like, just, I mean, turn on any news channel, any of them, CNN, Fox News, CBS, not Bob Grip anymore, he he retired. You know, Channel 5, Channel 11, 15, whatever you watch, you're going to get two things, body counts... You know, just how many people got shot, ran over, or murdered in Mobile or Pensacola. And why do they play so much Pensacola news? Anyways, and so so, (laughs) you're going to get all that stuff. Then you turn it on Fox News, and it's how dumb Trump is, and it's how dumb Nancy Pelosi is, and it's how ridiculous this AOC person is. And, you know, all you hear is all this negative stuff. And even I find myself getting sucked into it sometimes. I'm like, we need to do this because of all the bad that's going on here. Listen, we don't react in our growth. We don't have to react to the negativity of the world around us in the sense that we have to hunker down kind of a mentality because Jesus said this, I'm going to be constantly building my church and it's not going anywhere. Now, it may lose visibility at the time, at times, and it has and I heard I think it was Charles Spurgeon that may have said that the church and I'm not quoting him exactly because here's what you need to learn about pastors. You can make up any quote you want and just say that Charles Spurgeon said it, and everybody believes it. All right, that's just the way that it is. So I think he said this, but he talked about how uh, the church was like the Rhine River over in Europe because there are points where the Rhine River gets very small and it actually runs underground and it comes back up in another place. And he said that's what the church is like. There's times when it looks like it's non existent, there's a times when you can't even see it, but it's always there. And the reason why we're always there is because Jesus said we would always be there. Um, I read a quote out of, uh, it was Baptist History, Volume 3. So exciting. And, um, but to get the three credits, I had to read it. And, but there is a good quote in it. The guy, and I'm, again, I'm giving this book was written in like the 1800s, so I'm giving you the, the 21st century take on this. He says that talking about the martyrs of the church and how badly they were martyred, Even all the way back into the 14th and 15th centuries in England, it was horrible over there. And one guy said, a historian said, that everywhere a drop of blood hit the ground, a new church uh, popped up. You know why? Because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, and that the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against it. This is what theologically we call the perpetuity of the church, and there's your fancy word of the day, kids. Yes, per, yeah, church, that was it. <laughs> yeah. For some of us, that might be the fancy word. <laughs> we often think to ourselves that, you know, hey, if we don't change this and we don't change that and if we don't do this differently, the church is just going to disappear. No, we're not. We're not going anywhere. They can pass all the laws that they want. And I'm not trying to sound like some kind of pseudo-martyr because I don't want to have to like hide my faith I don't want to have to try to, you know, I don't have to put my head on the chopping block. I mean, if, you, if we have this intense desire in us to want to be in those situations, uh, th- there's something not right there because, you know, I mean, I enjoy being alive, all right? I enjoy the freedoms that we have, but the church isn't going anywhere. I mean, if times do get rough, we're still going to be around. There's according to Jesus, and I'm going to believe him before I believe Fox News. (gasps) Oh, Sorry. Verse 19, I want you to see the influence that the church has. Now, this is what Jesus said about us. He says, and uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think it's very interesting that Jesus talks about keys here. What do keys do for us? Well, if you're Doug... They let everybody know you're coming because (laughs) we can hear you jingling, you know. But he's only got two keys. So biblically, you should only have two keys, Doug, just two right here. Okay. (laughs) No, that's the way that it is, right? And uh, (laughs) what's that? They unlock things. They unlock things. They give us access, don't they? You know what else they do to an And in this extent, this figurative speech that Jesus is using here, it also gives you authority. Um, I'm the maintenance director where I work, and there's lots of doors everywhere. I'm the only one that has certain keys, you know. Not that that makes me special. I'm just, I'm the maintenance guy. That's it, you know. Walking around with a plunger, it is my scepter, you know. And... uh, But I have access to places, and I know where things are that the lady that runs the facility, she doesn't even have a key to, you know, and she doesn't know where they're at. It gives me, you know, to a very pathetic illustrated example gives me some authority that she doesn't have, right, you know? And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's saying, listen, because of who I am and because of who I've made you, you have access to things, you have authority over things, that others do not. Now, that doesn't mean that we're special because we're just the ones that receive the authority. We didn't go out and earn it, nor did we create it. This wasn't our idea. This was Jesus' idea. And when he says this, he says, listen, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. He's basically, uh, we can kind of sum it up this way. I heard one guy say it this way. We're called, you know, often we pray and we will, you know, tell God to make you know, things a certain way. We do it. We all do it, and there's nothing wrong with it, all right? Or we ask, I should say, not tell. But you know what I mean. And I heard one guy put it this way. We pray heaven to earth. We don't pray earth up to heaven, all right? That's what this is about. What Jesus is saying is, it's like what Justin talks about all the time, about bringing the kingdom to earth. The kingdom has come. And we have the uh, spiritual authority. We have the spiritual access to release that to people. Now here's the key behind it all. Where does the the kingdom of where where does the kingdom of heaven, uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth, where does it start? All right, because it's easy to talk about the kingdom in abstract tones, isn't it? You know, and and it sounds good, and it can get us kind of vamped up in our minds and get us worked up, uh, you know, somewhat even emotionally to think about the kingdom is on earth, and yes it is, and I'm excited about that just like you are, but where does it start? Where does it come from? It comes from inside you. That's where it comes from. It's where it comes out of. The kingdom in you is the life of Jesus Christ. It's that simple and it's that complex all at the same time, you see. And that finds its foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel isn't an end to the means to get to the kingdom. The gospel is the foundation of the kingdom of heaven on earth. You want to release the kingdom on earth? Release the gospel as much as you can. Put it everywhere. let it Speak to everyone you can about it, and you're going to see the kingdom of heaven released on earth. Uh, You're going to see opportunity after opportunity for God to build His church one individual at a time. And maybe if you get to speak to a group, maybe it's several people at a time. But what we need to remember, let let me read this verse. This is a good one. There's a church across town named this. Luke four eighteen. Fred, you, you said you went there for a little while. I think this is, and this is a, this is Jesus speaking. And boy, what a! This was an awesome. One of my favorite situations that Jesus put himself in was when he he read this verse. He walked into the. Uh, the synagogue and he walked up there At a synagogue if you're not real familiar how it's set up I'll do this real quick and we'll move on because I got to finish up because Ben's back there probably juggling knives and flaming swords right now to keep everybody entertained <clears throat> in the middle of the room there was kind of a platform and in that platform was they would bring the scrolls out and they would lay that 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 scroll out on the platform the women would sit on one side of the room the men would sit on the other side of the room and usually facing the platform that's where all the religious leaders would uh, uh, sit And really the way that they did it, the men or the elders of that particular city could go in and they could open the scroll and they could just do like a favorite reading is what they would do. And so one day it was Jesus' turn. He gets up, he takes the scroll of Isaiah, he opens it up and he reads this verse which is a quote from Isaiah and he says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind." to set at liberty those who were, oppressed, who were oppressed. And he stopped reading right there, and the Bible says he closed the scroll and said, Today is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Man, you talk about sucking the air out of a room. <laughs> they literally tried to kill him right there, after, not right in that moment, but after that, just days later, they tried to kill him because he said that, because they knew what he was saying. He was saying, Listen, The one that does all this is standing right in front of you. Right in front of you. It's me. I am the gospel. The gospel is a noun. It's not a verb. It's a person. It's not a thing. The gospel is Jesus Christ. And Jesus stood up and said, I am this one that sets people free. And then when we get over to Matthew chapter 16, he looks at these, these 12 guys. One of them that would sell them out. And he says, on this statement, on this rock, that you said that I'm Jesus the Christ, I'm going to build my church, and I'm going to continue to do the very thing that I did before through you now. Or through you then, depending on where you're sitting at, right? If uh, you're here this morning and you've never been born again, we want to help you with that. We want to, you know, we can't save you. Pure Grace isn't here to save anybody. Uh, We're just here to point you to the person that does save. Uh, So if you've never been born again, you never can just put your finger on a time where you accepted the revelation that Jesus Christ is God's final word for salvation and reconciliation and forgiveness and life with God, you can get that settled today after the service. Come find me. I'd be happy to talk with you about it. Uh, If you're a believer, understand that your identity is linked directly to the identity of Jesus Christ. Who he is is who you are in this world. All right, let's pray. Father, thanks for loving us. <clears throat> Lord, and uh, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Uh, we pray that uh, you would give revelation in the hearts and minds of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.